Well, if you turn with me to the passage, familiar passage in 1 John, we're in chapter 4, and I was looking at what to preach on, and I thought, shall I go carry on on 1 John? And right in the middle of the section we're reading, and in the middle of the shorter section I'm preaching on, we have this phrase in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 14, which says this, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Saviour of the world. So I thought, let's, let's stick with 1 John. We're going to read chapter 4, verse 7, through to the end of the chapter. 1 John chapter 4, uh, if you have a pew Bible, it's page 1868. And we start at verse 7. This section is about our love for one another. Beloved, let us love one another, for God is of, love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Well, may God bless his word to us this morning. I've called this, as you see on your sheet, Christ at the centre. And at the centre of what? Well, let's start with at the centre of what we've read in verses 7 to 21 of 1 John 4, and more particularly in verses 12 and 16 to 16, which I want to look at this morning with you. This whole section is about love. This word occurs numerous times. And yet in the three verses 13 to 15, it doesn't. It's there in verse 12 and verse 16. And in verse 12 and verse 16, there's also this thought of us abiding in God and him in us. And that is the theme that's still there in verses 13 and 15 as you move from opposite ends of this little section. And then in the middle, you don't have love and you don't have abiding. You have, we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the, sent the Son as Saviour of the world. It's a sort of A, B, C, B, A set out. 
Uh, you start with a thought, John does this, doesn't he? You start with a thought, you bring another one in. You move on to something else and then you move back to where you were. And that's what I'm hoping to bring out this morning. And just really to take each verse as it comes to do so. And yet when we try and take each verse as it comes and we get to verse 12 of 1 John 4 and we start with no one has seen God at any time, we start thinking of another place, place, don't we? We start thinking of John 1 and verse 18. And because John is quoting himself here, in that prologue, that majestic prologue to his gospel, he concludes it with these words, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the Father, the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, shown him forth. And so our thoughts come straight to Christ. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus came to make him known. But of course, he, Christ, is not here now. So we who know him, to whom he ha- God has been made known in Christ, have to show him forth, make him known. And one way we would do that, as John emphasises, is by our love to one another. <clears throat> if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. People cannot see God. They cannot see him in his essence because he is invisible. I told you possibly before the anecdote of the little girl frantically drawing a picture in class and her teacher saying, what is it that you're drawing? And she says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, you can't do that. No one knows what God looks like. And she says, when I finish, they will. Well, the little girl was very confident, but she was mistaken. Because, of course, we cannot... Can we? Oh, yes, we can, can't we? We know what God is like, not in his essence, but we can see him in the manifested in Christ. We read of him in his word. And the point is that the world is meant to see The reality of God, not in his essence, no, but the essence of God. If we say the essence of God is love, verse 8, God is love, that is meant to be seen in this world. How? Through us. We are meant to make God visible. How? By our love. This God produces this love in us by his indwelling. It's a fruit of the Spirit. We come to the Spirit in the next verse. And Billy has been preaching on this. And it's there in Galatians and it's the first fruit lifted, listed. It's not something we bring up out of ourselves by effort. It's the absolutely natural result of the Holy Spirit being within us. Love for one another, which is what John is speaking of here. And which the Lord Jesus Christ spoke of when he said, this is how men will know that you are my disciples, truly my disciples, as opposed to the people who claimed to be his disciples on earth, many of whom went away from him. How do we know the true disciples? By your love for one another. This is the mark of the true Christian church because it's the mark of the true believer. The God who is love produces this love in us by his spirit and it's only there in us if God is in us. That's what John says here. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. 
I love these fellow Christians, we say. We've become a Christian and we suddenly find that and it might surprise us. Here are these people with whom we have nothing in common except that they believe in Christ and so do we. And we find a love for them which wasn't there before. And we say, how is it? And John says, it's because God is within you, within us by his spirit. And his love has been perfected or Literally, he says, his love is made complete in us. In other words, what the world can't see of God's love from him to us can be seen by our love to one another, the love which comes from the God who is love. People need to see more of God's love. And in the Christian church, it should be that they see that love. A holy love. Remember, chapter 1 and verse 5, John, before he says God is love, after his introduction, the first thing he says is this. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There are many people who would say they are Christians, many people who would try to teach what they would say is Christianity and what they certainly are not saying is that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. This is not some sentimental fluffy love that says it's fine to be as you are and you've no need to repent and you've no need to change and God accepts you as you are to keep you as you are. No, this is the holy love of the holy God which transforms us and makes us like Christ and one really central Evidence and outworking of that is that we love one another with a holy love. We live in a world, don't we, where people say, where is God's love? They say, look at the Middle East, look at Ukraine, look at how what happens down the road and someone murders someone. Look at all the misery, look at all the poverty, look at all the illness. You know, I know someone who's dying of cancer, or maybe it's you. And, and people say, where, where's God's, you say God is love, where? Where is God's love? If God is love, where is he? And we say, in Christ. We say, God's love is shown in Christ. He came into the world to be the saviour of sinners and died upon the cross in his incarnation and in his crucifixion. In the place of sinners, the Son of God. That's the supreme manifestation of love. John has said that, verse 9, in this the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So that's how we answer. But then people say, okay, you say that, you assert that. You say that Jesus of Nazareth, that baby, was a son of God and that he died on the cross for sinners and that that is love. And they say, well, I can see what you're saying, but I don't believe it. Where's the evidence for the, blow up, for the assertion? They say, prove it. And it should be that we are doing so always. In the body of Christ, this love should be so at central and so essential and so evident that people can see that what we say is true. That there is no other explanation for the Christian love that we have 
except that we are those who have been redeemed from our sins and brought to the God who is love through the death of his son. But to be able to do that, of course, we have to be preaching the real Christ. And we have to be living, as it says, God abiding in us. And how do we know we are? Because there will be temptations to doubt the reality of our salvation. And John goes on, verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. This mutual indwelling is there. It's declared not just here, is it? Throughout the New Testament, God lives in us by his spirit. We live in him. It is a spiritual union. Notice how we've moved from God in verse 12, we come to the Spirit in verse 13, and we're coming to the Son in verse 14. This is another of the many, many Trinitarian passages we have in Scripture of the working of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in harmony, or as we sing in one of our hymns, don't we, they in blessing agree. Uh, always make sure that if you find the Father and the Son or the, or the Spirit, look, look for the others in the New Testament, and you usually find... All three persons of the Godhead, they're never far away from the passage you're in. And here is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The one who Paul puts like this uh, in this context, Romans 8 and verse 15, where he says, you did not receive the Spirit. He's talking of the Spirit of God. In fact, go to verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. We look within us. We look at the work of the Holy Spirit within us. But we also have that instinct that he gives us now. We are new creations. We are different. We cry, Abba, Father. It is our great delight to, to, to speak to God, to speak with God to abide in God and him in us. It's by the Holy Spirit that we know that. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, then all these things just sound completely up here somewhere, don't they? Meaningless. But this is the reality of the Christian life. We have the real Spirit of the real God. There are many false spirits. Oh, how we read that, chapter 4. And verse, here in verse 1, do not believe, love, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the fleshes of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And that's so important to say. Because there are so many people who will try to teach uh, unbelievers uh, that they need God's spirit and they will try to teach them experiences which will they claim give the, these people the spirit of God and that Christ is out of the picture completely. One anecdote which is true and is told me uh, by the person I'm, I'm talking of is someone who will be known to many, not all of you. And this lady came to him in complete perplexity 
and not knowing where she was because she had gone off with a friend to a meeting where she was meant to receive, they were all meant to receive, the Holy Spirit. And by a mixture of hypnosis and physical force, she was meant to fall backwards into, made to fall backwards into someone's arms and she was declared that now she was a Christian and the spirit was in her and all her evil spirits had been cast out and goodness knows what else. Slain in the spirit. And she had never heard one word of the gospel. She was not a Christian. And coming to the person I'm speaking of, she knew she wasn't a Christian, or at least she knew other people who said they were Christians. It was very different from what she had. Someone who was trying to to bypass Christ and just speak of the Spirit. What Spirit? This is the Holy Spirit. This is God has given us of His Spirit. And what is the result of His Spirit? It means that the gospel that we have heard has come alive within us because Christ has come alive within us. And so we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Saviour of the world. The Spirit who, who assures us that we are, verse 13, abiding in God and him in us is doing that. By this fact that we know. We know the Son. We know we have seen and testified. The apostles saw and testified. But they passed this on to us. Because verse 15 is going to make that clear. To see that that God has sent his Son as the Saviour of the world. Isn't that what? On Friday evening we were here and at the carol service. And we'll be doing it at other times. And we're trying to reach out. And this is the message, isn't it? If you wanted to sum up, what is the one, in one sentence, what is the message that we're trying to tell the world at Christmas? It is the message we're trying to tell the world always. The Father has sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. That's what we're saying, isn't it? Into this world of sin, God in his love has sent his Son to save people from their sin. We know this Christ because he has saved us and the Holy Spirit lives within us. We know him, the promised Son of God, sent into the world by the Father, the eternal Son of God, who is the true God, who is, as we may well sing again, God of God. This is the reality, isn't it? This is the Christmas message and it's true and so we testify of him going on to verse 14 and we have seen and testify sorry there's verse 14 we have seen and testify we testify that the father has sent the son as saviour of the world we don't keep it to ourselves we testify it by word but in the context John is saying isn't it we testify it by our love also here is a Christian And they have been radically changed, delivered from their sins, changed within, made born again of the Spirit. And the the Christian then, if you're a Christian, this is you, isn't it? You are a living testimony to the grace and the love and the power in salvation of God. And the testimony is to come from your lips and from your life, the life of love which backs up 
reinforces, illustrates, proves true the claim that you make to the world. God sent his son to be the saviour of the world. So we testify of him. As here we've seen in verse 2. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus is the Messiah. Who is eternally God and has come in the flesh as the only and the real saviour of sinners. The only saviour. There is no other. No one comes to the Father except through him as he himself said. But he is the real saviour. He is not someone who's done part of the work. He is not someone who's come into the world and done something which means that if you add something to it yourself, you will somehow be saved. He is the saviour. You have him, you have salvation. John's going to go on and say uh, later on, uh, he says, verse 12 of the next chapter, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Eternal life wrapped up in Christ. And we must proclaim him. The eternal son whom the father sent as the saviour of the world. In contrast to those who John has mentioned as we've said already. Who preach a false Christ. Not everyone says oh come you can be uh, filled with the spirit. Slain in the spirit and doesn't mention Christ. But there are many who preach a false Christ. Some of them might come and knock on your doors. I want to tell you, the one thing they really want to tell you is that Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. And we go and testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because if someone believes in a false Christ, then they have a false salvation. And how much, again, so sad, isn't it? How we surely all wish, not just me, that that, I didn't ha- that, that this isn't true, what I'm going to say, but it's evidently true, that you can go into church after church this Christmas, in terms of thinking of church as a building, and you will hear people who either deny or just skate over and don't mention because they don't believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God come into the world. We might say, they might have Christmas services, they might have elaborate Christmas services, they might decorate their churches, they might have mangers and all sorts of chanting and goodness knows what. And all it comes down to is, we're celebrating the birth of a baby, but we can't really tell you why. Liberal sentimentalities. People who have infiltrated the Church of Christ and destroying it from within. Termites eating away at the building. Do not believe them. Because they will eat away at your faith if you believe them. No, we have seen. We testify. We must too, so That the Father has sent the Son as Saviour of the world. Whoever, verse 15, confesses that Jesus is the Son of God... God abides in him and he in God. Of course, this must mean a true confession. Anyone can, say, can speak the words, Jesus is the Son of God. But a confession always means that which is from the heart, that which is real in the sight of God. A true confession. So the true church and each true Christian 
by the indwelling of the Spirit, verse 30, so that we dwell in God and he in us, know that God has sent his Son as the Saviour of the world and we confess Jesus as the Son of God. What a privilege to be able to do that. What a privilege to have God open your eyes and change your mind and your heart in such a way that you can say and know it's true Jesus is the Son of God. What a privilege to be able to, to be in that state. You've been brought from darkness to light, this human child, Jesus born in Bethlehem, known to men on earth as Jesus of Nazareth, because that's where he grew up. That we can say this is the Son of God. We can proclaim him to the world. God has come in Christ. He has wrapped himself in our clay as we have sung. God contracted to a span, incomprehensibly made man. God the Son has come to be the saviour of the world. The one who is divine as well as human. The one who John speaks of in the first verses of this book. That which was from the beginning. But we've heard and we've seen. And we've looked upon and our hands have touched this word of life manifested to us. <clears throat> the eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. This, He says the eternal life has come into this world. And, and John says I and the other apostles we've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him. What a, what a great privilege. But we too who do not have him amongst us can proclaim him and are to do so making a true confession from a heart conviction which is accepted by God. Let me ask you at this point, is that what you'll be doing this Christmas? Is that what you have been doing? We've had our cower service. Is it, what, what are you doing this Christmas? Let, let's take singing as an example because that's what we do and we see each other do it or hear each other do it. And you pick up the, the hymn book and you sing the, the hymns that talk of the birth of Christ. We had two this morning and there'll be many others. We had many on Friday and we have some more next week, doubtless. Do you mean them? Do you understand them? Do you believe them? Do you, when you have verses that talk of, God, of Christ being God and uh, and that he's become incarnate and, and that he is the saviour. Do you believe these things or do you just say that's what these people who I'm singing along together with believe? Do you know that he is the saviour of the world because he has saved you? Is he within you? What is within you this Christmas? Is it the truth because it's Christ? Or is it an emptiness? Is your singing of the songs and the hymns the expression of a reality which you can express all year round? Or is it just something which affects the top of your mind or perhaps the emotions of your heart once a year and then you can go away and forget about it? Make sure that it's the former and not the latter. That you have so come to Christ that you do confess that he is the son of God. That's gladly confess. 
And that that's because God, as the verse goes on to say, lives in you and you live in God. And you are united to him and this is eternal life. So we come back from God sending his son back into the abiding and now we come back to the love in verse 16. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. John has said some of this already. But you notice the expression, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Note the order. We have known. We have come, if you have come to Christ by the grace of God, you have come to know God's love. You can say, I know that love of God because God has come into my heart in Christ. I know he loves me. Praise God, I know he loves me. And therefore you believe it. It's not the other way round, is it? He doesn't say, believe God loves you and you'll be saved. He says, no, when you have been saved, when you know God loves you, then that informs and fills your mind in such a way you can absolutely have assurance, God loves me. He has given me his son. He has saved me from my sins. He has made me his child. He has put his Holy Spirit within me. I have been born again of that Holy Spirit. I am the one in whom that Holy Spirit dwells. I live in God. He lives in me. I will be his forever. He will bring me safe to glory where his ransom captives meet. You know. You know the love God has for you. Therefore you believe it. And even when there are times when you're not feeling, the word is not in this text, feeling that love, but we could paraphrase knowing as feeling in terms of experience, ongoing way. Even when you don't feel it, you can sit and you can think and you can pull yourself up short and you can say, but I know. I believe that God loves me. All the experience that I've had of him Since that moment that he saved me. God loves me. Why am I sitting here doubting that God loves me? Have I not had multiple evidence that God loves me? I have known that love. I must believe it when I'm not feeling very much like it. You see what John is doing here. He's saying that knowing the real Jesus leads to knowing and believing the love of God to us. For it is in Christ alone that this saving love operates and can be experienced. And therefore he goes on, God is love. And he said that already, hasn't he? Verse 8, God is love. And here it is again, God is love. This is, how how do we know that? He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. He's bringing that back to us, isn't he? Because God is love. The Christian life is one where we remain in God and God in us and we remain in love. You could say love to God because John doesn't specify. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. But in this whole context it's clearly our love for one another that he's speaking of. He will come back to speak of the love of God, to God as well later in the chapter. Love for one another. So God remaining in us and us in God. And this is the ongoing Christian life. 
This is the ongoing Christian experience and testimony. As I've said, I think it's in, I've mentioned it again here because it's a little phrase I use often, isn't it? Christ is for life, not just for Christmas. You know the original of that phrase, a dog is for life, not just for Christmas. But Christ is, isn't he? And this is some of the evidence, isn't it? That there will be people who will come, and we're glad to see people. They'll come, they'll sing the songs, they'll hear the message. They'll go out from here and sadly maybe they will never think of Christ again for the whole of the rest of the year. And here are those who know him, who know God's love in him, who have the Holy Spirit witnessing in our souls and whose love for each other and for Christians is constant and hopefully growing. And that's the ones who have Christ for life not just for Christmas. The test of remaining in God and he in us is love. We live in the God who is love and the God who is love lives in us and love is the badge and the mark and the evidence of that reality. This is true Christian living. If I asked you what is the Christian lifestyle, you might start saying, well, Christians do this and don't do that. If you go out into the world and ask people, they might say Christians go to church. Or they might say Christians don't swear. Or they might say Christians don't do this or do do this. Or Christians believe weird things. They might say all sorts of things. What they should be saying is this. Christians love one another. The indwelling of the God who is love by his spirit leads to confessing his son, we've seen that, through whom we have come to know this love and it leads to love from our hearts to him and to one another. Again, as I bring to to a conclusion, uh, there's, there's, there's this complete dichotomy, isn't it? This division. On the one hand, those to whom the eternal Christ is ever present in their hearts and who Christ is our life and it's him we live out in this world and it's him who we trust in, it's him we look to, it's him we walk with, it's him who is is there, not there, here all the time. We are in God and he in us by the Spirit of God, by Christ indwelling. That's the one side. Look on this picture. Look on the other picture. And here is the person who might think, I'm doing pretty well. You know, everybody else ignores the gospel, ignores the church, but at Christmas I turn up and sing some carols. And then I go away and I live my life just the way I want to do. Fulfilling myself trying to gain satisfaction from this world, trying to live in a way which pleases me, trying to live in a way maybe which pleases some other people. But unless someone keeps telling me about Jesus, I never think of him. What a difference. What's the difference? The difference is this. Here is Christ and here is not Christ. And when we sing, and people misunderstand it so much, don't they? We read of of the angels coming and, and they say, Peace, glory to God in the highest. Well, does that strike you? Is that what you really think about what happens when Christ comes? That first it's to the glory of God, and then, and peace on earth, goodwill to men. 
Yes, from God to man. People say, oh, it should be a season of peace and goodwill. We should be nice to each other for a week and then we can go around killing each other. No. God brings peace. God brings goodwill. Not temporarily, but permanently. His peace, bringing us to himself and sending us forth in love to him and to one another and then out into the whole world. May God enable us to be those who know the Son by the Spirit and who live in the God who is love and who show his love now and always.